0: Hey, it's Brandon. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. We know that the demands of HR and payroll are endless, and that's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both, so you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your organization. Learn more at zeniumhr.com. All right, today's episode features Ben Gutman. Ben wrote a book called Simply Put, Why Clear Messages When... And in this world where there's a million different ways to communicate, and most people aren't great communicators, they complicate the message, they don't craft a clear and and simple message. And so Ben is here to talk about how we can minimize our messaging, how to reduce friction so that we can prevent people on the receiving end of the message to not get distracted. And whether you're an HR professional, a leader, or just somebody who communicates on a regular basis, this is a great episode for you. Enjoy today's conversation with Ben Gutman. Thanks for coming on Transform Your Workplace.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: We're going to talk about your book. It's called Simply Put. You wrote in the intro that we're all marketers in some form. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, my background is in marketing, right? I I ran a marketing agency for 10 years. Uh, I teach marketing at Baruch College here in New York, but I also am a User of the world. I'm I'm a spouse, I'm a voter, I'm a consumer, I'm a neighbor, I'm a family member. And I would often see that the things that I would do professionally, that somebody would, you know, a client would go and send us a big check to go work on, were often the same types of problems, just at a different level that I was dealing with in every other hat that I was wearing. And this is kind of one of the the big foundational pieces of the book here, which is translating some of the stuff that marketers do and understand and practice into lessons that are applicable for everybody else.
0: Do you find that most people are poor communicators? Like you your your book title, simply put, so simplification is is a big theme of this book, but do you think most people just over engineer what, what they're trying to say?
1: I think that the overengineer part might not be the word I would use as overengineer, but I think that we have struggles, certainly, between what we want to say and what we end up saying a lot of times. When I looked into this question, which is why do some messages work when others don't, which is what drove everything that uh, comes in the book, I landed on this one word that kept coming up in the research. Uh, it's a word that you and I know because we've heard it a thousand times. It's fluent. We can be fluent in English, we can be fluent in Spanish, Mandarin, in chess or cooking or, or bike riding. We be fluent in a lot of different things. And when we're fluent, things are easy. It's easy to take things and, and make sense of them and make use of them. And that's, you know, how we understand in common language. But also when you look at a, how a cognitive scientist would approach the word fluency, well, there's perceptual fluency uh, and there's processing fluency. Basically, the summary of that is how easy is it to take something from out in the world Stick it into your head and make sense of it. And all the research in that domain all points to the same conclusion, which is that the easier it is for us to take something from out in the world, stick it in our head, make use of it, the more fluent something is. Well, more likely we were to buy it, more likely we are to trust it, to like it, and all the other kind of positive things that we want.
0: So the most effective messages that that you see out there, they're they're ones that distill it to like the basic terms. It's simple. It's clear. Right.
1: Oh yeah, and. The simple piece is also a thing that a lot of people trip up on. When I talk about simplicity in messaging, it's not about it being minimal in terms of the smallest number of words, smallest number of sentences or paragraphs. It's about being minimal and least amount of friction and something being as as easy as it possible to make use of it. Because what I just mentioned all those when it is easy. We have all these positive associations with it, but when things are more difficult, when they make us sweat, when they make us really work, when our brain has to to work overtime on it, well, what happens? We're less likely to buy, less likely to trust, less likely to like. And those are all the things that we don't want to achieve most of the time when we're the ones communicating.
0: There's an example thing you brought up several times in the book about the, the parking sign. Maybe share with listeners about that, because I think that's a good illustration of like when something's so complex, maybe on purpose by design, but it's like you, you're not as a consumer, you're not really understanding what, what it's trying to say versus
1: like there's another way of doing it. Maybe share those examples. Oh, yeah, I love that one. So what you're referencing is a parking sign that here in New York uh, we had during the Ed Koch administration, the, the mayoral uh, administration a number of decades ago. Uh, And this is an illustration of kind versus nice, right? So one of the reasons why simplicity is so effective is because simplicity is kind. It cares about the outcome. It cares about the underlying truths, not just the surface level niceties and politeness and decorum that when we talk about nice being. It's good to be nice if you can be nice, but it's much more important to be kind. So the example that you're referencing with these street signs is well, in typical New York fashion, uh, the street sign said, don't even think about parking here. And when you compare that, which is, you know, it's very blunt. It's this street sign has, there are souvenirs of it. Uh, There was a sequel, which is uh, no parking, no stopping, no kidding. Uh, And you know, how many other street signs have souvenirs and have par- have sequels and are still years after? Memorable message, that's why. Yeah, and when you compare that with something that's like, oh, no standing, this hour to this hour, truck loading only except when it's Wednesdays and maybe it's raining, all these different things. That is, in some ways, you think you're being very clear of that, but ultimately what you're saying when you have that complicated street sign uh, is you're being nice, but you're not necessarily being kind because you don't always care about the outcome. The don't even think about parking here is telling you, uh, you know, listen, we're not going to, we don't care about being nice, but we care about you not having your car over here, which is ultimately much more important than the politeness level.
0: Yeah. I love that example because it, it does illustrate at a basic level, like complicated messages like that, either like, don't understand it clearly, don't resonate with it. So you just avoid it altogether. I mean, we think about it, like we're constantly being inundated with messaging, whether it's marketing messaging, whether it's our colleague that's sending big, long emails. I mean, things that are expansive tend to get stuck. So like, why, why is that?
1: Well, so we talked a second ago about what we want as a receiver, right? We want something that's simple, that's easy, that we don't have to work too hard on. But when we're wearing the other hat, when we are the ones sending a message, and I, in the book, I actually break this down. I say there's senders and there's receivers. Strip away everything else, right? If, it's an, if you're a marketer, an advertiser, a politician, uh, a CEO, uh, whatever, you're a sender. If you are a buyer, voter, a donor, a student, whatever, you're a receiver, and so that I think, by the way, helps clear out a lot of the um, a lot of the. What about this example? Brother? It just simplify it down to those base levels. Problem is, when we're a sender, we are facing an internal and an external battle against simplicity. So internally, we have what's known as an additive bias, where we're much more likely when we're asked to improve something, to change something, to make alterations to add instead of subtract. That extra page, extra paragraph, extra slide, extra attachment to that email, all of those things come to us more easily when we're in the production mode than removing does. So that's one of the internal mechanisms. Externally, we're also faced with a challenge because, well, every force in all of our, (laughs) in different environments pushes us towards more, right? Well, it's better to have another slide because this other person can go and claim credit for something. It's better to add another paragraph because the lawyers want to make sure that we're covering our bases on something. And so there's this credit problem, but also there's this this use of defense that we have when we talk about complication because if you get into a client meeting and you get into a job interview and you're saying, yeah, I don't really have a great answer for that, but you know what, if I throw enough words at them, maybe I'll be able to get out of this alive. I'll, I'll hide behind the complication.
0: No, that's that's a good point. And and two things come to mind. One, you illustrated in the book, which is like the terms of agreements that a lot of big companies will do. They'll kind of hide in the complexity of the legalese. And then, you know, I I love my HR people, but like the policies and procedures are like overcomplicated. So are these by design? Is it accidental? Unpack that for me. Uh,
1: I think that it's probably a little bit of both. I think that when you look at like terms of um, use and user license agreements, these are crafted by people who their job is to cover every possible circumstance, every possible situation. It's the lawyers, it's the HR teams, it's the the data privacy folks. Um, and all of that is, again, which is another example of what the incentives are externally for complication. But if you actually cared about what the what the receiver of those terms of use, well, you would, you would vastly simplify and you would say, okay, well, this is, these are the, you know, two or three or 10 or whatever basic promises that we have in our uh, end user license agreement. There's, this book is probably not something that's going to be very popular with lawyers, um, (laughs) even though it probably should. I'm I'm sure of it.
0: (laughs) You illustrated a point in the book, there's a graphic and then you had some expanded thoughts about it, about things that get noticed, then things that get actually remembered,
1: and then a fraction are
0: understood. What do you, what did you mean by that? Unpack that for listeners.
1: So we, we are really good at noticing lots of different things that we were designed for that. That's the reason why we're here and our ancient ancestors weren't uh, eaten by a saber toothed tiger at some point. We were really good at noticing when like leaves are rustling off in the corner and that might indicate some sort of threat. But we've also, because we're good at that, we've also built up uh, defenses to to filter out all the different things that might be you know either something we want to eat or something that wants to eat us. And we start to not notice things in the world. Like I use an example of banner blindness. So if you're on the internet and you're scrolling around, you don't even see the advertisements that are there. You, you're literally, your brain just jumps right past them. That's an, and that's been actually the case, by the way, for like three decades. It's been kind of crazy. We adapted very quickly to banner ads as something that was not of interest to us. And our eyes just kind of jumped past that. And then only some of those things still, people make use of them. I talk about friction a lot because my background is in design. And from a user experience designer, you want to eliminate friction as much as possible. To understand something and to make use of something, well, you want to have as little bit of friction, as little as friction as possible between where you are now or what you want the user to get to. I mentioned that In when I talk about kind of minimal messaging, and I I alluded to this a few moments ago, where the thing that we want to eliminate is friction. Because each bump in the road is an opportunity for somebody to get distracted and go attend to one of the other thousands of things that we could attend to in any moment. But you know, an example of of how we're really good at this sometimes, if you look at e-commerce websites, well, you start adding something to your cart, and then you click and you go in and you start to enter your shipping information and your credit card information. Well, what happens all around the website there? All the other bits of friction are gone. All the other off ramps, the little, you know, buttons to go to the different sections or the about us of the blog, they all disappear. So we understand this when it comes to dollars and cents, but we have a hard time sometimes applying this to every other mode of communication. That's
0: a really good point. You bring up, there's three sins of complicated messages. What are those sins?
1: I say that complicated messaging is selfish, cowardly, and dangerous. So selfish, we talked about a little bit before with the terms of use and the the license agreements. Uh, They're often used to hide things that we don't necessarily want the receivers to know about, but we have to somehow get out there. So we're prioritizing our needs over somebody else. Cowardly is, well, that's an example of we're not very good at expressing the truth through complication. Uh, simplicity requires that we are honest and that we, are, we know what the ultimate truth is for it. but cowardly uh, is a way for us to kind of hide behind, again, that wall of words, which you sit in a meeting and you say, hey, let me get out of this by doing that. Sometimes the truth is something that's not as enjoyable, that can be painful. And that's ultimately what we have to face. And the last one is dangerous. I mean, I I use the illustration in the book uh, where I talk about the Columbia disaster, the space shuttle Columbia disaster, as a, as a communications uh, breakdown. Well, that's also the case for the Challenger disaster. That was also the case for most aviation disasters. Most healthcare accidents come from miscommunication. The leading cause of divorce. It's the it costs you know billions of dollars in company balance sheets. And there's a real cost we pay when we're not clear.
0: Yeah, actually, that stuck out to me that the one about I think is the Challenger where like buried in a report, a PowerPoint slide or something was this tiny little bullet point just littered with jargon. And if it was actually clear, then maybe there would have been some major red flags that would have like, let's maybe evaluate this and then launch a different day. And But it was just so buried in there. And I think that's like true of, I think of the workplace and how complicated and how jargon and uh, we use acronyms and, and just it gets so overly complicated, it doesn't need to be.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The uh, example you're talking about was in in the Columbia disaster was like page seven of like the fifth report. It was like the sixth bullet down and it had like some weird formatting and it had about 18 different uses of the same units for different for different things. But the truth of that message should have been something as simple as hey this is a really big chunk of foam that just hit the side of the the orbiter's wing maybe we should do something about that but because it was hidden away it wasn't salient and that's one of i think the principles i talk about is that a simple message is salient is that it stands out it sticks out of from the background it's, it's figure versus ground right that if everybody's zigging you're zagging uh if you want to blend in go ahead and be complicated. But if you want to stand out and you want to be noticed, that requires being simple often.
0: Yeah. So let's get into those attributes that you just brought up salient. So the, some of the attributes within simplification of messages, there's uh, a few components to those. What are those?
1: I mentioned before I was a designer as by trade. And so I looked into this, this gulf that we had, right? So I, when we want to, receive messaging we want it to be simple when we're producing messaging when we're sending messaging we have a really hard time getting there or just we're just not built for that internally externally so there's that hole in the middle well what, what what does a designer do is you look at the situation you look at the constraints and you say okay well how do we bridge that gap how do we arrange things that we can connect the two and this is not a step-by-step list it's not a it's not a checklist even but it's five principles uh to design our messaging around if that's an email presentation website whatever So the first one is beneficial. What does it matter to the receiver? What's in it for them? People don't want the thing that what the thing does for them. right? Focused, number two. Are you trying to say one thing or multiple things at once? Number three is salient, which I just mentioned. Does your message stand out from the noise? Does it stick out as it does a contrast? Number four is empathetic. Are you speaking in a language that the audience understands? Are you meeting them where they are both in terms of the actual words, but also, where they are emotionally, what their motivations are. And then, lastly, minimal. Have you cut out everything that isn't important? Do you have everything you need, but only what you need? And I talked about friction before. That's really what we're measuring. When we're talking about minimal.
0: The, the, I want to hone in on the minimal because I think many people, like who are maybe not an English major, it, getting to a minimal message is, is hard, right? Like, we use all these filler words. And um, it's, it's hard to even edit our own work to, to cut it down. I remember, there's this book I read, I think it was, it was called On Writing Well, and they showed like this essay, and then the same essay with all of the redundancies of, of words cut out of it. And it was like, I mean, a paragraph compared to an entire page. And it's amazing that how much stuff you can actually strike through. But I think for a, a person who's not writing doesn't come easy, how do you get there? So I don't know if you have some tips. Are some tools that you actually
1: use? Oh, I mean, it's hard, right? The, if you look at all of the famous writing advice from the past, you know, 100 years, it all basically boils down to at least 50% of it boils down to, yeah, write fewer words, right? <laughs> like make it shorter, eliminate everything you don't need. And it's, it's all true. It's very important to eliminate redundancies and to, and to avoid you know, big words or, or run on sentences when you can. That's easier said than done. The uh, one tool that you can use is uh, what I'll call a kind of verbal Jenga or play Jenga with your your sentence or your paragraph, or your, your message. If you remember the game Jenga, the little jumbling blocks, as you pull pieces out, well, it starts to wobble and maybe at some point you pull out the last one and it falls down. If you have a sentence and you can pull out a few words and see, does it still make sense? Does it still make sense? Does it still make sense as you're pulling things out? Well, Eventually, at one point, it won't and it'll fall down. And right before that, that's when you know you have a structurally sound message. You have the absolute baseline for what you need. And maybe for your own style and for your audience, it makes sense for you to put a few words back in or to put a few sentences or paragraphs back in. Uh, But it's much better to establish that minimum viable message and grow from there than it is to, um, you know, it's a the daunting task of staring at the big giant essay and trying to and trying to get it smaller
0: do you th- think there's a concern with people that like going so simple and clear would maybe you be perceived as a simple-minded person? Do you think that's a real
1: concern for people? So a lot, a lot of people have that fear. Uh, however, when you look at the, the research that a bunch of different folks have done over the years about this, the exact opposite is true. So I forget uh, the name of the researcher, excuse me about it, but uh, what they did was they took a, a grad school application essay and they, they ran it through in their little system and they said, okay, well, I'm going to take every word and make them a little bit longer much more complicated, more esoteric words in, uh, in replacement of the standard essay. And they went and they took judges and they asked them to grade these two different sets of essays, the regular ones and like the super thesaurized, you know, extra long, super smart ones. It turns out across the board, well, the regular essays performed a lot better than the ones that were, you know, puffed up with all this big language and with all this extra... Uh, the extra kind of SAT language in there. That was you know, just one of the examples, but it also worked the other way too, which was when they took a regular essay and they simplified the language and they used words that were shorter, that were easier to understand. Well, that actually, that essay ended up being rated higher than the standard essay did. And this applied to grad school applications. They did this with some philosophical texts. They did this with a bunch of other things. And the same behavior came up every single time is that big words tended to make us look stupid.
0: You also said that speaking to a crowd doesn't work and that we should really speak to the individual. Um, I, you know I think of like when we're sending like even corporate communication, we, a lot of times we're saying like, hey team and we're speaking to the, the group
1: does that work? I, I say that because I, I say crowds don't exist. Yes, they do in some ways, but in terms of how we're communicating, everything is still a one-to-one. you know if I'm standing in a political rally of a thousand people around me, I'm hearing that candidate one-to-one and making that decision. If I'm getting that email you just mentioned, that's, hey, team, well, there's no team. It's me. I'm getting the email. Who's? I don't care about the rest of them. We're all making these decisions internally in our head for purchasing, donating, buying, voting, whatever it is. You know who's really good at this? I saw Taylor Swift's concert movie recently. My wife's a big fan. I like her. She's good.
0: I do too. I'm going to Miami next year to see her. So.
1: Well, yeah. My wife flew to Detroit to go see her too, but I'm not that big of a fan. However, I, I really enjoyed the movie. And... I noticed something about it. Uh, she is the best person in the world probably at making you feel like she's just talking to you. She's there at a, uh, you know, on stage in front of 70,000 people and she's making each one of them feel like they're the only person in the room and she is able to still convey that across time and space by being on a movie screen and make the people in thousands of theaters across the country feel the same way that every single line she's saying, every single song he's singing is directly to you. And it takes a mind, I think that's very intentional, it takes a mindset shift. And it's also about a lot of little pieces about what kind of language you're using, kind of uh, uh, gestures you're using to be able to get there.
0: How do you think we can get better at that? Because I do, I do think it's a skill that you have to learn. Maybe there's tools that can help Assist you in that. Heck, maybe even some of the generative AI tools that are out there. I don't, I don't think you really said any of that in in this book, but I'm curious what your take is on that. Like, could we help simplify and and even? build these attributes into our messaging using tools like that
1: so you can go hire a marketing agency and spend a lot of money and get them to develop what they'll call personas and that's a very a very good tool it makes your your work a lot easier and more effective often to do that but it also costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time there's ways to do these things much more scrappily and that is you know just kind of quickly identify you know who might be the type of person that that is the ideal person in your audience and who's the median person in your audience, uh, and speak to them. And if that means go grabbing a stock photo off the internet, if that means kind of writing a quick biographical sketch and saying, Hey, my product is for Kevin. And I just like, this is, I'm going to, I'm speaking just to Kevin on this, or I'm speaking just to Nancy on this one. Well, that makes it a lot easier. Instead of you thinking I'm speaking to everybody who's a follower, everybody is a customer. Well, no, I'm just speaking to Kevin or I'm just speaking to Nancy. Uh, and that helps you get a lot clearer. I mean, hell, even if you just take a post-it note and you draw a little stick figure on it and you stick it on the side of your monitor, that will get you pretty far in terms of saying, well, you know what, I'm, this email that I'm writing, that's going to go out to a hundred thousand people. No, it's just going to this person. It's going to this little, you know, doodle that I wrote there and it will, it will change your mindset.
0: That's, I like that. That's a, that's a good exercise for anybody to go through when they're speaking to any, any audience. Um, You know, a lot of listeners of this show are HR professionals and leaders of companies. And and what comes up time and time again is like communicating company values and the vision for the future to their teams. I don't think people communicate this very well. So what tips would you have for creating a, a clear message around what the company believes in and where we're going as an organization that is easy to resonate and even repeat? Because I think that's where like this internal brand I mean it's just like it's just like marketing right outbound marketing to an, an audience you want to bring your employees around so you can attract and retain people so
1: how might we go about that same principles apply same principles apply and a few of them are particular are coming to mind as, as we're talking about this probably the most famous example of these corporate values is don't be evil right Google's mantra for for years and years why was that so effective as opposed to everything else that's just a bunch of platitudes? You know, put on a piece of paper or on a website somewhere. Well, it was salient. It was something that was that was different. That was that stood out in this kind of sea of boring, kind of wishy-washy corporate work. Integrity and integrity, honesty. honesty, Nobody cares. And it's also empathetic, right? It's empathetic because it's speaking to me in the language where, where I am. Uh, the My favorite example of empathy, you're talking about a message meeting where meeting me where I am, is my dentist. I've always had bad luck of cavities. I go to my dentist one day and he says, well, you only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. And I'm like, well, that's, <laughs> that, you know, that's it. That's all I needed to hear. Yeah, you got me. Great. Like that's 100%, you know, meeting me where I am. And don't be evil, I think, is a similar version of that, which is, Hey, we're not going to tell you this big, giant, you know, corporate buzzword slog fest here. We're just going to give you three simple words and we don't be evil and to move on with it. Um, I think that there's, there's an element of focus, a lot of that too, because a lot of companies, you mentioned like honesty and transparency and, and trustworthiness and, and empowerment. All of these things are good. But when you start to just throw out a word salad of them, when you say, hey, I have eight principles, I have eight priorities, well, there's no such thing. All of none of them mean anything at that point. If you have eight core values or twelve, you know, you know, guiding uh, mantras, it's important to say, okay, what is the main thing that we're here for? Uh, priority, by the way, is a singular word, and so, like, what is the priority? What is the thing that's important? What comes first? And then the last one that I'll I'll throw out that I see the biggest sin that a lot of folks make is not being beneficial in their messaging. And I think this applies a little bit more on the internal side than it maybe does on the external side for like these company mantras. Beneficial means that what's in it for them, what's in it for the for the receiver of the message. I say this sentence every semester when I teach my students, I tell them, if you remember this phrase, uh, this quote actually by a Harvard professor, Theodore Levitt from the 20th century, if you remember this quote, Uh, you will be ahead of of everybody else in marketing. Even if you forget everything else that you learned in this class or this whole degree. Uh, And it is people don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. They don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. People don't want the thing. They want what the thing does for them. They don't want the feature. They want the benefit. We operate in features all the time because we see, smell, taste, features with our five senses. But the benefits are actually what's motivating us to... Any of these decisions that we want people to make,
0: yeah, I, I think I remember there was like the the ad comparison of the drill, and I think it was like a quarter inch drill, and then the the next line in, in the the good ad was showcase your memories or something some of the like the effect of like the benefit is you're gonna have a picture hanging on the wall by using this drill. And I think that's super powerful. It's, it's no different than like when Apple came out with the iPod and it was like a thousand songs in your pocket. They spoke to the individual. They spoke to, to what you're going to get. And, and they definitely, you know, they went different than most people would go. They'd go with the features.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, they could have gone and said, we have a four gigabyte hard drive and we have this many <laughs> pixels on the screen. And, you know, what is that. I mean, we were just chatting before the show about how we were like like millennial nerds figuring out how to burn CDs. We might understand that, but most people are not gonna get that. They're going to they're gonna be like, well, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean? It means a thousand songs in your pocket, right? And it's it's immediately understandable to to everybody in the audience.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Well, Ben, this has been a really fun discussion. Thirty minutes went by just like that. Um your book's great. Um, I would do want to ask you this, though. You wrote a book that's 200 pages talking about simplicity. So what's up with that?
1: <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, you know, I purposely cut this off at the past year when I, in the first page of the book, in the preface, I say, I wrote a 208-page book about how to say things simply. Uh, it sure sounds like I didn't take my own advice, right? So, But the, the reason is, if that's enough, if just saying, hey, go say things simply, go communicate with more simplicity... If that's enough for you, great, don't buy the book, don't read it, doesn't make a difference to me. But if you're interested in the the why and the how of how we can communicate more effectively, that is a surprisingly deep topic. And that is something that can cover the other 207 pages uh, in the book.
0: Yeah, agreed. Well, I think people should go pick up your book. Where can people learn about you, connect with you, anything like that?
1: I appreciate that. So you can find me at bengutman.com. Uh, that has kind of links to everything from the book to I have a newsletter. I send that every week. Uh, and uh, I do have to spell it because my name is not minimal. So it's uh, Ben, B-E-N, Gutman, G-U-T-T-M-A-N-N, two T's and two N's. Uh, it's uh, it's not a name for radio, but uh, I, I certainly appreciate you having me on. It's been a blast and I'm so glad you enjoyed the book.
0: My guest today has been Ben Gutman. Ben, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Brandon.
0: The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on transform your workplaces for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.